I am, I am excited for this podcast. Uh, we'll have fun. All right, yeah, those are kind of what I wanted to touch on too, if we can. Yeah, so by 200 AD. Also, four gospels. Yeah, big Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita. Yeah, what is that? Bhagavad Gita? Sounds like a dessert. <laughs> <laughs> it's a um, Hindu book for spiritual enlightenment and practice. Outside of mispronouncing the word, I don't think I could ever understand it. Yeah, it's not hard. I mean, you can get commentaries on it, too. It's just, it's a story between, um, boy, it's been like 10 years since I've read it. Story between a man and a woman, and it's got all Hindu practices and everything in it. It's just more for enlightenment if you practice Hinduism. It's not equivalent to our Bible. It's kind of like a book that brings more spiritual experience. Hmm. Something like that. Are we on right now, or what? Yeah, okay, so this is how we do it, okay. is um, we start just recording anyway, and I we get some of like the pre-show dialogue, and I trim, I always trim it, so. And anything that makes us sound stupid or not intelligent, we cut it out, because... Yeah, sometimes. Unless it's funny. Unless it's funny. Unless it's but funny, But we also yeah. want people, the main focus behind the entire podcast is so that people think we're perfect, oh, and they can't live up to that perfection. Mm-hmm. You give them a complex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to be as good as that guy. No. What's his name? Well, I'm disturbed. <laughs> disturbed. Disrupted. What Disrupted. Disrupted. Distracted. Distracted. Mr. Shank, my high school Bible teacher, we've had him on a couple times, and he'll say at the end of it, um, you've been disrupted. And then that's how he ends the episode. <laughs> so we always do something how we end the episode. I'd say something stupid and cheesy like catch you on the flip side see you on the flip side or something like that it's it's a new thing so that you, people say you will have to say um, something at the end and he says um what is what is what do you say it's something like, shalom no yeah it's so shalom. jewish <laughs> they're gonna think you're actually jewish that's the goal yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i feel like the first question the first thing we want to do is get to know you better so oh. we're going to start with that Oh, okay. And then <laughs> uh, uh, you, can, you can probably figure out like where you want to start. I, I like long walks on the beach. Uh, <laughs> okay. Sunsets uh, and sunrises. Probably... In that order. Yeah. Seagulls. Alka-Seltzer. No, I don't. <laughs> you guys ever heard of that? I'm trying uh, to remember. Give uh, Alka-Seltzer to seagulls. Yeah, they just start pooping everywhere. And they blow right? up inside. Yeah. Have you done that before? No. He was a Navy. He's a Navy guy. <laughs> no, I know people who have though. Wait, you said you're in the Navy? Or he's, were? He, 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 he was just, in the Navy. He just said that. I just gave it away. You said he was yeah. in the Navy. He yeah. said I was in the Navy, so it must be true. Yeah. Uh, I'm so always right. supposedly, were you in the Navy? I, I was in the Navy. Okay. <clears throat> How long did you serve for? I served for four years. Okay. I was I lived in uh, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. Okay. Mm-hmm. Fort Island, right when the strike happened for um, December seventh. 1941, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, I lived right there. Oh, I thought you said oh, you were there. I 60, thought... 60 some years later. Okay, but that's the spot. Okay, I was like, this, you are so old. No, I'm not Methuselah, but yeah, I lived. I lived there, so I'd run around Fort Island every night. It's two and a half mile run, and the USS Arizona is there. It's the memorial. It's um, yeah, historic place. Okay. Yeah. How long ago was that? I left there December of 2005, okay. so I don't know, um, 18 years, almost 19 years now. So you said September of 2005? December. December. Yeah. Were you born yet? 
Uh, yes, I was born. <laughs> yes, I was born. But I was just saying, okay, four years. So backing up all the way to 2000, January of 2002, I went into boot camp. Okay. And then I went to Pensacola. Was that brought on because of the whole... No, it didn't happen right at, at that time. Yeah. No, it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with the fact that uh, I was two years into college, and I I needed to get out of Wisconsin. Okay. <laughs> I was tired of the cornfields, so I had to go do something. So something you grew fun. up in Wisconsin? Yeah. I okay. Up by, by Green Bay. Okay. So all I had were the Packers. <laughs> <laughs> Packers get old after a while, and you want to yeah. do something different than just watch the Packers and deer hunt, so... Good. Is the hunting good over there? Hunting's pretty good. Yeah, uh, Wapaka is really good. We hunt up by uh, Anigo. I know you don't know have any idea where that is, but it's, I wish I knew. Yeah. Sounds fun. <laughs> there's nobody up there. Northern Wisconsin's pretty desolate, so it's yeah. There's a lot of deer. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. So I think we know. We know all of you. Now we you know. know me. I'm a pretty, pretty <laughs> simple guy to know. That's all. I, that's all I am. Really. Uh, welcome to disruption. <laughs> Disturbed. <laughs> We are going to talk about the Bible canon, uh, who came up with it, who put the books together. If you turn on the History Channel and they've got an episode about the the Bible canon and where it came from and, um, and people start to get all spooked about it and, you know, is the Apocrypha, wasn't that supposed to be a part of the canon? But then the, the theologians like took it out and all this other stuff. So we're going to get into all of this on this episode. So stay tuned. And so what people want to do is, well, since the enlightenment has come in, people think to themselves, we don't have to you go to God for reasoning. We can do we can do scientific experiments. We can do be able to logically build our own foundation. We didn't what we need to be doing is humanity needs to be influenced by what God has to say about us. We don't come up with it ourselves. Everybody has a starting point that they appeal to for authority. The scientist has experimentation. The philosopher has reason. What do Christians have? The biblical God. This is Disruption. Hey guys, welcome to the Disruption Podcast. I am your anchor, Alex Sigma, for now. Nehemiah and Josh are out for the week. Um, they have me instead. Yeah, <laughs> we we drag Sam along in for his by his uh, overall straps. It's true. Um, <laughs> we have him here with us today, and um, we also brought in uh, a good friend of mine, a pastor from Seventh Reformed Church, one of the pastors from Seventh Reformed Church, uh, who teaches a Sunday school class uh, after um, after church. We'll go in there and right before lunch and discuss things like the the canon. How do you know it's true? Uh, worldviews, evangelism, counseling, um, all these topics. Uh, but I found them to be really interesting and hopefully beneficial for this podcast. And I wanted to bring Ben on and get through some of this stuff. It's a it's a lot of material, and I don't think we'll be able to get through all the questions. But I'm glad we have like. A few but bear just with us because this is going to be good stuff to know and learn, and yeah. I think we'll hopefully answer a lot of your questions, right? Yeah, especially since it's become such a debate now. I feel like I don't know what's what's been your experience, Ben, with with seeing the arguments. Yeah, it's that, a debate, a lot of misinformation, a lot of confusion, mm-hmm. 
a lot of opinions not substantiated by anything really um, <clears throat> fact-oriented. Where do you think that comes from? It comes from starting from the position that you want the Bible to be wrong. If you start mm-hmm. there, which most people who are antagonistic against it, that's where they start. The desire of your heart. So that's what they want. They want the Bible to be wrong for many reasons. Moral reasons. They don't want to be accountable for God. They want to be purely autonomous, live life the way they want to. They don't want this. They see it as male oppression. You know, Europeans bringing in the Bible over here. That kind of thing coming from the postmodern worldview. So there's a lot of reasons. Mostly, though, they're moral reasons. They just have um, an issue with God and the Bible. So they will latch onto anything that proves their starting point correct, even if the evidence doesn't substantiate the claim. That's like um, the main Bible critic now. um, Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman. Yeah. 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 He's very much, he starts from, well, you were telling me this earlier. He starts from a position of he doesn't, he doesn't like the fact that God allows evil to exist, right? Right. He's an agnostic. He was um, professed to be a Christian, attended Moody, got his PhD under Bruce Metzger. He's a biblical scholar. He knows his stuff, but it's not the manuscript evidence that turns him away from the Bible. The book of Job, the problem of evil, like you said, mm-hmm. how a loving God can um, allow so much suffering to take place. That is his main crux. That's why he takes the position he does and does everything he can to discredit Scripture, to discredit the Bible, mm-hmm. because of his belief that a loving God would not be that way. Mm-hmm. So therefore, that's his premise. That's his starting point, is, is generally that. Mm-hmm. You say starting point, and that matters a lot, because essentially that's how we relate to the Word of God, how we encounter it. Where, let's just say someone who's not a believer, does not know the word of God, where would you say the first place is for them to start? Like if someone's coming into this podcast and is listening to it and they're like, I don't believe that the word of God is true. Where would you like plead with them to at least start? Because that matters. So then I would ask to start here. How do you know that? How are you substantiating that claim? What is the reason, the logic and the evidence behind what you're saying? So kind of critique yourself as to what is the motivation and what is the reason behind why you're saying that. Is it because you're mad at God? Is it because you have a guilty conscience? Is it because you have a connotation in your mind when you hear the Bible that is not congruent to what the Bible is? So how much do you really know about the Bible so you can come out and say that you don't believe it's true? and substantiate that claim that's where i'd say to start look inside what is it that's bringing that out how much do you know about it and the reasoning and the evidence behind what you know does it substantiate the claim so a lot of times we have beliefs that once we look into it we're like wow i really had no idea there there was this much to it and you have what's known as assumptive knowledge where you think you know something about a subject or a person, but then when you get to know them and you get to listen to actually what they're saying, it's like, okay, my starting point was off. Mm. And most of what I have learned in life is just that I either thought something was this, but it was that, or thought something was that, but it was this. So I know from my life and my starting points, a lot of times when I start reading a subject, I thought I knew more than I did, and it it humbles you, because the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Well, it's kind of like reading through a book 
like the first time you meet a character and they almost rub you the wrong way when you're reading through them as a character and then chapter five comes around and you see that they it's not the same and that's a good point because in today's culture whether it's social media universities schools um the television the internet there's so much negativity out there against the bible that i think naturally that just gets absorbed into our unconscious mind and you accept it as true but you've never looked into it but all these smart people were saying it so it's got to be true so then that's where the foundation starts for them okay Mm -hmm. and then like you said it takes till chapter five to start to recognize whoa wait a minute maybe my past experience at church with the hypocrites maybe i took that too far maybe i've had experience with some christians who profess to be christians but weren't but there's actually truth here so maybe what I'm basing my opinion on is on a particular, and I'm taking that particular event and I'm generalizing it for the whole. And I think that happens a lot. Yeah. People have a bad experience in the past, therefore they interpret every experience in the future based upon that one bad experience yeah. in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what a lot of this is. That's good. That's a good place to start. And so I wanted to, I had a question about the canon. So when you talk about the biblical canon, uh, most people are wondering what that means. Yeah. Um, so what is yeah? What is the the Bible canon as we start to unpack that? So the word canon simply just means the rule or the standard. These are the mm-hmm. definitive books of God. Mm-hmm. So when we see when we say the word canon, we have the Old Testament canon, which in our Bible is thirty nine books. New Testament canon, which in our Bible is twenty seven books. Those are the inspired, authoritative word books of God. Mm-hmm. So it's important then that if we get these instructions or I guess these like rules from God that we need to know um, basically what they are telling us about how we need to live our lives. And, and this is like a big deal to know that we, that we have the right book, that we have the right um, books that belong to this canon because we want to know uh, what really came from God and what really or what doesn't come from God. It'll probably take a lot to answer, but how do we know that we can trust the collection of books that make up the Bible? Right, so that's a good starting question. I know a lot of times people buy a Bible, they read it, and everybody can probably attest to this experience. Maybe they're reading it late at night and they're looking through and they're like, how can I really know that these are the words of Jesus? Or how can I really know that Paul wrote this letter? When you're looking at Genesis, how do I really know that Moses wrote this, or that this actually took place. Yeah. Or how do I know that when I look at my table of contents, these are the right books and others are not? How do I know that? We start from the Bible. We start there and we read it and we trust it. But as we grow as Christians, I think this is why it's necessary to understand these things. Because probably I'd say from about 500 to 1500 AD, during the Middle Ages, nobody was really questioning the Bible. Nobody was, it was actually culturally unacceptable to question. But now, in the past 500 years since the Enlightenment, and now we have modernism and postmodernism, it's in the air we breathe. So as Christians today, we have to take that step now from familiarizing ourselves with Scripture, which is good, but now we got to take that next step. How can we defend Hmm. our Bible? How do we know that the Bible is, these books are what are meant to be in the canon? All of these questions and what I've been writing in our class is I've been writing four circles. The first circle is we do this for our own faith, for our own confidence, for our own growth. That's the, the centerpiece. 
The second circle around that is for our families. So we learn it, and then we teach our children, our wives, children, husband, or whoever. We teach our families and our, and our friends and our loved ones these principles. Mm. Then from that, it's to our church. So now does our church as a whole understand this? Because we're at church on Sundays and Wednesdays and maybe some other times during the week. But the rest of the week, we are in the outside world. We're in the culture. So we're socializing with people who are starting from the premise that the Bible is fill in the blank, not what it claims to be. Or people who have questions. See, these can be evangelism tools as well when people have these questions. So if the church is strong, then it can influence the fourth one, which is the culture. A lot of times we think apologetics, we go straight to the culture. First, that it has to be our heart and in our mind, then our families, then our church, and then the culture. I think that would be the proper approach to doing apologetics. Mm-hmm. So the canon is one of those, of, there's many, but the canon is definitely a critical issue. So then the question is, is how do we know? Where do we start? And what I like to do is... Um, I like to start with Hebrews 6.13. In Hebrews 6.13, I didn't um, bring my Bible down here with me, but just to paraphrase it, God could swear by nobody higher, so he swears by himself. So think about that. If God's going to take an oath, what's he going to swear on? Well, there's nothing higher than God. So when God takes an oath, he swears by himself. So when God speaks, that's the starting point. That's the authority. That is the foundation. God's speaking. And then we see Exodus 3. We see the burning bush. And you notice that when you see the burning bush, it's burning, but the bush is not being consumed. Yeah. What's that a picture of? With the doctrine we refer to as the aseity of God, God's self-sufficiency. So the flame can burn, <clears throat> but the plant's not being consumed. Meaning God can burn, and he does not need that plant. So when God speaks, he needs no other authority. When God does a work, he doesn't need human approval. That's the foundation of the canon. It comes straight Mm. from God. Most often, what do we do? We look at the history. We look at the evidence. We look at the scholars. We look at the research. Well, we're looking at what human beings are looking at. So we're starting with... The human criteria, we need to start with the very essence or the very nature of the Bible itself, which is God himself. Where has God spoken? He's spoken through his word. He's spoken through scripture, through the prophets, and through the apostles. Genesis 3.15, the first mention of the Messiah in the entire Bible, talks about Jesus crushing the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman. Go to Deuteronomy Chapter 18, Moses talks about the prophet, that when he comes, hear him. So from Genesis 3.15 to Deuteronomy 18, and now we go and see that prophet, which is Jesus himself. And in Acts chapter 2, the apostles verified that by quoting Deuteronomy 18, saying, yes, that prophet was Jesus. So God speaks. God sends his son. Jesus confirms both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Mm. He does that in Luke chapter, um, I have the Bible in front of me, I should have brought it. Luke chapter 11 or Luke chapter 12, where he says, from the blood of Abel to Zechariah, referring to Genesis and Chronicles. Genesis was the first book of the Old Testament. 
Chronicles was the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's how they had their books laid out. So what Jesus is saying from Genesis to Malachi, how we would say it, how our Bible's laid out, all of Scripture. And Jesus is authenticating the Old Testament. Jesus says he didn't come to abolish but to fulfill the law. John chapter 10, I think it's verse 35, Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. So we have God speaking through the apostles and the prophets. Mm -hmm. Genesis 3, laying the foundation of the Messiah. Deuteronomy 18, confirming that Jesus coming to earth. What does Jesus say about Scripture? I want to read the Bible the way Jesus reads the Bible. I want to understand the Bible the way Jesus does. Who is the top authority of Scripture? It would be Jesus himself. He's God. He would know. So the Holy Spirit moving the authors, breathing the words on the page. That's what that means. Inspiration is theonostas, meaning God breathed. So this is the process of how the infinite personal God has communicated to finite fallen humanity. He has spoken through his apostles, through his prophets. He's moved them. Every word is inspired. Jesus confirms this. And then the apostles fulfilled this, and that's why we have the 27 books in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, we see in Deuteronomy, I believe it's chapter 36, where God issued the Levites to be in charge of the sayings of God. And Paul, in Romans 3, 2, says, what benefit is there to be Jewish? Mm -hmm. They were the ones who received the oracles of God or the sayings of God. Yeah. So that eliminates all other religious books on the planet. God has spoken through his word, the 39 books in the old, the 27 in the new. And so what people want to do is they, well, since the enlightenment has come in, people think to themselves, we can reason ourselves. We don't have to, you go to God for reasoning. We can do, we can do scientific experiments. We can do, um, you know, anything we can use the evidence and we can be able to logically build our own foundation and then we can test God with it. Um, but what we didn't, what we need to be doing is start with God, and then go from that. Humanity needs to be influenced by what God has to say about us. And we don't come up with it ourselves. Right. And that we see that in book of Proverbs one, seven, mm-hmm. the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of knowledge, the reverent awe of God in all things. So we interpret all knowledge through the lens of Scripture. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So how do we apply that knowledge in life? Again, the fear of the Lord. And what you, like you said, the enlightenment took God, set him aside. Either he's irrelevant or he's deistic, meaning he's just afar off, he's, he's abandoned his creation. Therefore, human reason is now the centerpiece. But see, Jeremiah 17.9 says, what about the human heart? It's deceitfully wicked above all things. Sin has corrupted our reasoning process. It's it's what's referred to as the noetic effects of sin. So if our heart and our minds are corrupt, and if we start with human reason, we're always going to be off. We're never going to have the right foundation. We're never going to have the right starting uh, position, which is why we need the lordship of Christ in all things. We need to start with the biblical God in all things. So you brought up a good point. The Enlightenment shifted that. The scholastic method during the Middle Ages took that into account. Thomas Aquinas took that into account. He called it the eternal law of God. And based upon the eternal law of God is natural law, natural revelation. So you can interpret all of those things through the eternal law of God. 
Canon is no different. So when you're looking at the biblical canon, we want to start with the essence or the nature of the canon itself, which is God himself. Mm. That those words are God-breathed on the page. Like, sometimes when I hear that, there, there's this thought process of, well, what if a person thinks this, that it's just this big circle that you're creating? You're right. saying that God is just making evidence for himself, and uh, I don't want to say it's a whole elaborate plan, but right, the the scripture is giving evidence for other scripture, which is giving evidence to that scripture. Right. Yeah. And is someone it, just yeah, says circular that. Reasoning? <laughs> circular, circular reasoning? Circular reasoning. Sure. So what do, you, what do you say to someone that has that thought process? I'll say this. So for the scientist, if you're talking to a scientist, ask the scientist this. Ask him, prove to me your experiment is true without using your senses. Without using sight, without using smell, without using taste, without using touch. Prove to me your scientific um, experiment is valid. Or for a philosopher, prove to me your philosophy is true without using reason. So what you're doing is you're showing them that their starting point is their own reason. Their starting point is their own experience and their own senses. Everybody has a starting point that they appeal to for authority. The scientist has experimentation. The philosopher has reason. What do Christians have? The biblical God. God is the foundation. So yes, there is a degree of circularity, but everybody has a reference point or a starting point. Mm. So what you do is you ask them, okay, well, show me what you believe is true without using. And what you're doing is you're exposing their presupposition. You're exposing their ultimate foundation. Most people start with their own reason, their own mind. Okay, we'll prove that this is true without using that. See, they have to appeal to their reason. The scientist has to approve to their experimentation and their senses. Without it, you can't have what they're coming to. Mm. For us, it's God. God has spoken in his word. Whether you believe that or not to be true is irrelevant. He has. And again, now that goes back to the Lordship of Christ. It's called what they um, refer to, Alvin Plantica refers to this to as the sensus divinitatis. That's the Latin phrase for the sense of divinity. Romans chapter 1 clearly shows that the knowledge of God has been implanted in each human being because we're created in his image. So every human being knows of God. But what do they do with that knowledge? They suppress it. Romans 1. Romans 1. So they suppress that knowledge and they say no reason. They suppress that knowledge and say no science, whatever. They push God over here and then they find something else to be their starting point. Knowing the whole time that God exists, but we can't allow a divine foot in the door and choose something else for their starting point. So the two options that we have, whether you like it or not, is human reason or the biblical God. that's, That's it. That's where it comes down to. Who's your ultimate authority? We go back to Genesis 3. Has God truly said? Has God said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree? And then what was Eve's response? Hmm, she looked, she touched, she saw. Boy, that does look good. God's holding something back. She grabbed it. It's the same temptation that Satan used to bring sin into the universe. He's using that same temptation over and over and over again, generation in, generation out. Has God truly said? No, trust your sight, trust your knowledge, trust your taste buds. That's, that's what you go off, not what God said. God's, God's withholding pleasure from you. Go after it yourself. It's the same yeah. wisdom we see today. Same wisdom that we see applied to the canon. The natural, unregenerate person is not going to approach the canon the same way as somebody who has a regenerate heart, somebody who bows the knee to Christ, somebody who takes Proverbs 1, 7, and 9, 10 as their starting points. So 
do we start with human reason? Do we start with historical evidence? Do we start with the expert opinion, or do we start with the voice of God? And in John chapter 10, what does Jesus say? My sheep hear my voice. So why do people buy Bibles and read them and believe them and become, become saved? Is it because they have the historical knowledge that all of those books are there or they have the background knowledge? No. God has spoken. God has shown his light in their heart. He has regenerated them. Now they are born again and they hear the voice of God speaking through the word of God. Amen. Yep. So I have, a, I have a question for Sam here. Do we have any of the... Because this one first blew me away when I was in Mr. Shank's class. Do is this have... like a trivia question that I don't know? Put them on the spot. <laughs> yeah. Everybody makes this fun is... of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What is going on here? Okay, okay. Um, it just, I don't know. I just, you know, whatever. It's on the page, and I'm just going to read it. Okay, um, do we have any of the original manuscripts of the Bible? My understanding is that we do not have any of the original manuscripts. Yeah. Um, so like, but we have a mass quantity of many of those manuscripts. Uh, I'm, I was actually just listening to a podcast today about how, how do you talk about, you know, how do you essentially, how did the canon come to be? Like how they decided which ones were going to go into. And it had to do with quantity of the manuscript, the preciseness of the manuscript compared to the other manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Also the timing in which they found that they were written and did they align? Oops. See, now you made a good point here. How do we, who, so. Um, but I, of course, that is just me on a very basic right. level of yeah. that statement. Is, that is kind of the general understanding of the canon, but we have to understand. So we're starting with God. Yep. Mm-hmm. So who determines what books go in the Bible? God. God. Right. When does a book of either the Old Testament or the New Testament that we have today, when does it become canonical? When does it become Ready? a part of the canon? Okay, I was about to say, I was yeah. about to ask the question of canonical. Right. When does it become of the day. a part of the canon? Okay, that's my question. You might know because you were sitting. In the I class. know because I was in the class. Let's put him on the hot Let's seat. Let's put him on the hot seat. Yeah. When do we know that? When does it become a part of the canon? So when did Romans become, or Revelation, or mm. Matthew become a part of the canon? I want to say. Right. So you're the comic relief guy, so we gotta. Yeah, I am the comic. <laughs> In my like, in my understanding of it, it's the idea that when God says it does, but he, like, I f- that's where I'm at. Right. So, does it need human approval? Does God need human approval? No. No. Absolutely not. He's the burning bush. He doesn't no. need that bush to burn. When he swears by, when he makes an oath, he doesn't swear by anybody because there's nobody higher than him. So when God inspires, when God breathes the word on the page as he moves the author, the second that last word is written, that's a canonical book. Yeah. So each book becomes part of the canon as it's finished, not as it's, rec- not as it's see, human beings passively recognize mm-hmm. what God has actively determined. God is active in the canon. God put the canon together. God preserved the canon. Human beings recognize the work of God. They recognize the Holy Spirit's work through the apostles and the prophets. Mm. They don't determine. They recognize. And that's a huge, huge distinction that we have to make. When we look at the biblical canon, it's a recognized canon. Mm -hmm. Human beings don't determine it. It has already been determined when the author was finished writing the book. So you said that the canon is active. God is active in the canonical process. Yes. Human beings are passive. 
Mm. It's important because this is where we disagree with Rome. Rome says that Rome has given us the canon, that they are the ultimate determiners of the canon. That you don't have, if you don't have a magisterium to determine, to tell you what books are what, then you just have mass chaos. So what they do is they take the active role in determining what the canon is. But if we're taking a look at it from a biblical perspective alone, what we see is Paul knew his 13 epistles plus if he was the author of Hebrews or Theonostos inspired. So did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Hmm. When those books are written, because of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit inside of them, because of the apostles who authenticate the work, it's recognized as the Word of God, first century. Mm-hmm. So when was the canon complete? First century. First century. First century. Mm-hmm. Because John was the last of the apostles who wrote Revelation. If you late date Revelation to 96 AD, the last book of the Bible that was written, first century, the canon was complete. What do they do? They take those, so Paul knows that Romans is inspired. Starts making copies. Copies, copies, copies. Start handing them out. Back before the print. Printing press. Yeah, back before, before the printing press, right? Before the computer. You guys ever think, <laughs> this is also just a quick side note, they, those guys who, like, side No, strong their fingers had to be from writing all the time? Like, we don't write that much. Like, maybe we have strong thumbs from texting, but, like, those guys, I mean, they had strong fingers from writing. And they were writing on leaves, too. They didn't have paper like this. They put leaves together. Press them, yeah. Together and they were writing on that. They'd put them in, like, these massive, like, rocks, right? They'd squish them together. Yeah, they would press them together. They'd press they'd them, right? them together, right? Yeah. Anyways, old, you know, the apostles had strong fingers. There you go. They probably wrote in cursive, too, which I don't think your generation does, right? Greek and cursive? <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's it's actually, I don't know if that's historic. I was just making fun of your generation. Uh, it's true. We, I, I know how to sign my name in cursive, and I think I, I would say I'm not the worst at cursive. Out of like, I bet I could maybe beat Alex at cursive, just looking at his handwriting. He doesn't and look gen- too upset by that. Yeah, he I don't think bother he, him at all. Yeah, you stink yeah, at cursive. Let's see, I love. Did you? <laughs> See, I can write in cursive. Wow. <laughs> it's not, it says, I love you. No. Oh, olive juice. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay. Um, Side question. So you're saying that the, the canon, <laughs> yeah. which I also found out is not K-A-N-N-O-N, but rather, I'm also not K, C-A-N-O-N. Right. So not with two N's in the middle. I was thinking yeah. like an actual canon. No, not but like that. You were... So that was completed first century. First century. Has there been people who have tried to add to the canon since then? Yes. You'll find apocryphal books like the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Thomas. How do we know that those aren't a part of the original canon? Because they weren't written in the first century, second century, third century. See, the key to all of this is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. The church is built upon what? Well, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So Jesus is the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets are the ones who gave us the word of God. Mm. The, uh, the apostolic era was complete at 100 AD. 
therefore the canon is closed and no other books can be written after. Any books that are written after our second, third century, they don't have the approval or the authority of the apostles saying, yes, that is God breathed. Mm. Canon was closed. Okay. So when we look at, I don't know exactly if it's in the book of Isaiah, or I'm trying to remember where it's found. There's one book that is mentioned in um, Old Testament, and there's also one that is mentioned in Jude, I believe right. it's Book of Enoch. Book of Enoch mm-hmm. and then also Jasher. Mm-hmm. Um, those right. books are referenced within the the canon of the Bible. What do you do with books like those in which they're referenced right. but they're not within it? Do we look at those or as something or do we say no because they're not? Like how do you approach those books that were referenced? Approach them as historical books. Okay. Don't approach them as God breathed books. So like the book of Maccabees, you right. would read that from right. historically happened. It was what, seven hundred right. BC? So, no, it was uh well the Maccabean revolt was second century BC. So what we're looking at with the um with the apocryphal books. Now this is a, a different subject now. Old Testament apocryphal books, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, 3rd Maccabees, 4th Maccabees, Bell and the Dragon, Tobit, um, Judith. There's, I think, seven that Rome includes in their Bible that we don't. So why does Rome include them? Why does Rome think they're Scripture and we do not? There's a long list of reasons for this, but just to abbreviate it for you, first of all, the apocryphal books were written in what's known as the Silent Era, between 400 B.C. to the time of... John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit was silent during that era. The Jews recognized this, and if you read 1 Maccabees, it says it in there as well. So if the Holy Spirit is silent during those 400 years, Scripture can't be written. Mm. Second, God charged the Jews of taking care of Scripture. The Jews have never regarded the Old Testament apocryphal books as God-breathed. Never, not once. When Jerome was putting together the Latin Vulgate, he went to Jerusalem to learn Hebrew because he was translating the Bible into Latin. And when he went to Jerusalem to study, he recognized real quick that the Jews never accepted the apocryphal books as Scripture. So the Jews don't accept them as Scripture. They were written during the time when the Holy Spirit was silent. And also it's interesting to note as you go past Jerome now and take a look at other evidences, what we see is during the Reformation when Luther was on the rise, Rome picked Cardinal Cajetan to debate Luther in the 1520s. Cardinal Cajetan himself did not believe that the Old Testament Apocrypha were Scripture. Hmm. The very Cardinal they picked to debate Luther didn't believe it. Also, 6th century, Pope Gregory didn't believe that the Apocrypha were Scripture. So you have a lot of evidence, even from the side of Rome, showing us that the Apocryphal books were never... Because those guys were from that... From Rome. From Rome. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Right. They became officially a part of the Roman Catholic Bible in 1546 during the Council of Trent, which was the council that was called as a counter-reformation to the Protestant Reformation because the Protestants raised this issue, so what did Rome do? In Trent, they made them officially part of the Bible. Just as I'm listening to what you're sharing, you're saying the Council of Trent, the Council of Nicaea, 
all of these, I want to say, gatherings in which they kept on having these debates of the canon, the apocrypha, like all of these things developing, how do we know that these weren't twisted throughout history? Like right. after these, after right, the first century canon, those were, it was solidified. How do we know that during the dark ages when the Catholic Church wasn't allowing people to have their own scripture, but rather only priests were able to read it? How do we know that it wasn't twisted? Like well, That's a good question. First, just let me correct one thing. The Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the New Testament canon at all. Okay. Right? Because you mentioned Nicaea. Most believe today that Nicaea is when Constantine chose the books. They were the power to be at the time, the theological winners of the time. So at Nicaea, that's when, and there's been conspiracy on this, Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. You guys might be too young for that. Mm -hmm. No, I know the the book. I've heard of it. Yeah, it it brings that theory. And then when people read that fictitious book and they're like, oh, this is how it happened. Nicaea had absolutely nothing to do with the canonical process at all. What it had to do with Jesus being co-eternal to the Father um, refuting Arius's claim that Jesus was God's first creation. So Nicaea had nothing to do with the canon. But the question now is, how do we know that the canon we have today has been true for the past 2,000 years? Yeah. So it's interesting. When we look at the early church father writings, so we go back to 96, 97 AD with First Clement. What does First Clement say? First Clement lists 1 Corinthians, Romans, and Hebrews. 140 AD, we see Marcion. What does he reference? Galatians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Romans, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. 140 AD. So we have 18 canonical lists, historically. 400 AD and prior, 18 canonical lists. So if we look at those lists and compare and contrast, what do we see? Well, in 180 AD, we have what's known as the Martyrian Fragment, which was found in Rome. 180 AD listed 22 of the 27 books of the Bible. 240 AD, Origen lists all 27 books of the New Testament that we have today. Hmm. If we go a little bit further, or um, just go back a little bit, Clement of Alexandria, 198 AD, lists 25 of the 27 books. Origen, 240, all, like I said, all 27 Cyril of Jerusalem, 350 AD, same books that we have. The Synod of Laodicea in 363 AD, the same books that we have. And also Athanasius of Alexandria, 367 AD, the same books that we have. Also Jerome, 383 AD, the same books that we have today. So we have list after list after list after list prior to the 4th century that show that what we have in our Bible today is what we had, they had back then. Wow. That's really good information. So we have a lot of facts. We have a lot of evidence. And if you think of it this way, you got the Mediterranean Sea. You got 28,000 miles there. So you got France. You got Greece. You got Rome. You got Jerusalem, Alexandria, Hippo, Carthage, all around. We have gathered manuscripts from all of those places and compared and contrasted them. And they read virtually identical. But what I mean by that is 99.9% of the Bible that we have today. We have 5,400 Greek manuscripts today. 99.9% of them are under no competent dispute. What do I mean by that? See, there's 300 to 400,000 variants within those 5,400 manuscripts, but 99% of them are of no significant value to translation or doctrine. So Hmm. maybe where the word the was placed, or maybe the spelling of a word, or maybe a word was skipped, 
or maybe a word was added, or maybe a whole paragraph or a line was skipped. We have all those variants, and when we take all of these manuscripts that we've gathered, 5,400 Greek manuscripts, and we compare and we contrast them, what we see is 99.9% of the Bible is not under any competent dispute. 5,400 Greek manuscripts, 20,000 Coptic Latin Syriac manuscripts. It was translated not just in from from Greek to Latin mm. to all these. We have all of those manuscripts as well. All of these are dating between you know that time period between two to five hundred A.D. When we look at the manuscripts and we look at the canonical lists, we can be certain that what we have today in our Bibles is what they had then. That's so cool. Wow. So we started with the we first started with the essence. When we right. came with this, we have, to, we, we have to say that the nature is like, this is, we believe in God's word and this is from God and nobody can, um, you know, God is self-sufficient in just who he is. And then from there, now we have a lens in which we can interpret the evidence. Mm-hmm. And turns out that when it comes to the Bible, biblical canon, we have so much evidence of it. We do. And, and how much of this ever gets it out? Pales in it pales in comparison. This is why this is probably good that we're doing a podcast like this and others to get the information out that we have so much information, so much evidence. Yeah. It's like, wow. But how many of us really study the canon? So then we go off to college, young kids go off to college. They haven't been really instructed in this. So when the instructor raises some simple objection, like, well, Constantine and Nicaea, 325 AD, gathered all the manuscripts in and he, he chose the canon. And the student is sitting there like, oh, I never knew that. I just thought the Bible was true. It looks like it's a funnel going to one point and then like that it's, again. It's, so how then they raise the seed of doubt in, in somebody's yeah. mind. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So just to... Firm. I also realized that when you're doing the circles, I definitely did the diagram of the circles wrong. Um, but you said ourselves was in that first circle. Right. So, yep. So how it works self. is self. Yeah. And how and an understanding uh, the word of God and right is that is right. that what we were talking about right right. So like what we're talking about here, I'm not I'm not that smart of a person. Why is this knowledge in my head? Well, because I've absorbed it into my head because I want it there. Yeah. I want this so deeply rooted in my conscience that when I hear an objection to the canon, I instantly have the answer to it. Mm-hmm. Strengthens my faith. Yeah. Right? Now I want to tell my family, friends, and loved one. I want to make sure the church is grounded in this. And then when we're grounded, we take it to the culture itself. Mm. Like that. Mm-hmm. And hold it up for the that oh, camera. Well, it's sloppy, but <laughs> like this. Cursive. <laughs> Cursive. No, I printed. I printed. It, printed. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We might have to have you on again. Yeah. yeah I feel like we only got question three yet. No, we didn't. Okay. <laughs> we right. hardly got through. I think we it. might have to have you on again because yeah, uh, for sure, there's a lot within it. Yeah, and, and this is. We can rabbit trail too. We just maybe. scratched the surface. Yeah, we really did. But these are this is kind of like a thumbnail sketch. If you want to give mm-hmm. somebody a thumbnail sketch, um, also if you want to look at um, books on this, I didn't create this knowledge. I got this from books. Um, Michael Krieger's book. Um, he's got two books on the canon. Also, Norm Geisler has a general introduction to the Bible, and Bruce Metzger and also FF Bruce have um, books on the canon as well. So just Google their names. Mm-hmm. All of these, all of this information has come from them. Uh, if there's one last thing you could say to somebody who's listening uh, regarding the canon and regarding understanding the word of God, 
Uh, what would you say to them? Yeah. I would say that faith in God's word is the only reasonable choice we have in life. Out of all of the rational choices out there, to doubt God is the fundamental, most irrational thing we can do. Hmm. So placing faith in his word is the only rational thing we can do. It's very, it's the only reasonable option we have. If you look at, if you want to look at other options and other religions and other beliefs, we can't get into that today. But God's word is true. He has spoken. The evidence of that is all over. I mean, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit and the believer. If you want to read um, the conversions of many people in the past, um, myself and others. So believing in God's word is the only rational choice that we have in life. That's good. Love it. We'll see you guys next week. Catch you on the flip side. Shalom. (laughs) (laughs) Hebrew scholar. You've been listening to the Disruption Podcast, where we disrupt the culture and place Jesus at the center of it all. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing from wherever you are. You can also follow us on Instagram. Once again, thank you so much. We'll see you on the next episode.